This is the Woodland Hills Family Church Podcast. Our desire is to inspire you and your family to become fully devoted followers of Christ. Now enjoy today's message with Ted Cunningham. Today we're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 4 in the first eight verses. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to uh, even get the app on your phone out or go to BibleGateway.com and uh, take this text with you into the New Year's, we talk about running your race. You are responsible for your race, and you do have a race to run. And I know this time of year, people are thinking about what their word for 24 will be. I talked to several of you who are setting goals. Some of you are going to hit that gym hard on Tuesday, and all of that's good. But we're going in a little bit different direction today. I've always been a student of U.S. presidential history. I love it. If it's a movie, a documentary, a book, I, I, I just I devour this. And one of my favorite traditions uh, happens at the end of one president's term leading into the new president. And uh, I don't know if you know what happens on Inauguration Day, and I should probably preface this by saying on a normal Inauguration Day, uh, but a lot's going on at the White House while everybody is down at the Capitol. I mean, they're, they're, changing, they're moving one family out, moving one family in. They're even redecorating the Oval Office. But a tradition that I've always loved and I hope we get back to is on the last day in office, the outgoing president writes a letter to the incoming president. I've chosen to read to you today the letter from George H.W. Bush to Bill Clinton, primarily because he has phenomenal handwriting. Uh, A lot of our presidents could have slowed down the penmanship a little bit uh, because some of them are hard to read, but this is a handwritten note left in the Oval Office for President Bill Clinton. January 20th, 1993. Dear Bill... When I walked into this office just now, I felt the same sense of wonder and respect that I felt four years ago. I know you will feel that too. I wish you great happiness here. I never felt the loneliness some presidents have described. There will be very tough times, made even more difficult by criticism you may not think is fair. I'm not very good uh, at giving advice, but just don't let the critics discourage you or push you off course. You will be our president when you read this note. I wish you well. I wish your family well. Your success is now our country's success. I am rooting hard for you. Good luck, George. I I love letters like that. It's almost like last words. And at the end of 23, it's a good time for us to reflect. And today... We're in the climax of 2 Timothy chapter 4, and you can consider these Paul's last words to Timothy. Where is he writing these words from? I need you to think of a cold, lonely Roman jail cell under imminent threat of execution. He's run his race. He's at the end, and he sends back this encouragement, this exhortation, this challenge, this charge in a very powerful statement to Timothy, and that's where we're going to start in verse 1 of 2 Timothy 4. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, with God and Christ Jesus as my witness, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. And listen to these words. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Preaching and teaching is at the foundation of the church. The health of the church will go the direction of the preaching and the teaching. 
Now, maybe some of you grew up in a church that was happy, 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 encouraging all the time, or maybe some of you grew up in a church that was uh, rebuke, 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 and, and challenge, 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 correct, correct, correct. Look what he says. Correct, rebuke, and encourage. This is part of a preaching ministry. When, when you come in here week after week and hear the Bible read and then the Bible taught, the Bible preached, you should be aligning your life with the Scripture, not the other way around. We don't come to the Scripture with our lifestyle looking for verses to support what we've already decided to do. We come to the Scripture for correction, for rebuke, for encouragement. And he says, as you fulfill this ministry, Timothy, you need to understand, it's with great patience and careful instruction. You know what he's saying right there? He's saying life changes slow. And for some people listening to you, Timothy, it will take years, years for them to get what you're trying to get across. And it will frustrate you. You will, you will see someone who's been at your church for years and years and years living away, and you're like, you know that's not what the Scripture teaches. And it will make you want to pounce. I have no idea what he's talking about here, but I'm trying to express to you what he's sharing with you. It's going to take great patience when you preach, teach, correct, rebuke, and encourage people. Because sometimes it'll take people years to get this. So with patience and careful instruction, fulfill this ministry of preaching God's word and be ready at all times. Verse 3 and 4, this is the, the problem. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, you can actually read here to lifestyles, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They won't want to hear what you're teaching. They won't want to hear what you're preaching. They will fight against you. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. So what do you do in that situation? The charge continues. But you, in that moment when you're frustrated, Timothy, in that moment where your patience has run out, in that moment where you're trying to help people in their lives, giving them God's truth, he says this, keep your head in all situations. Don't shoot off. Patient, careful instruction, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. This is not just poverty. This is all the hardship that comes with people hating you because of what you're proclaiming. You're going to have to endure a lot of hardship. So, but, but in the midst of all that, do the work of an evangelist. Don't stop calling people to repentance. Don't stop calling people to change lives in Christ Jesus. In fact, discharge all the duties of your ministry. What a charge from a man who is soon to leave as Phil Robertson calls it, planet Earth. What a charge to the young man. And the challenge for us in here today, for those who've been running their race a little while, is to think about those who are just getting started. In 2005, Billy Graham retired. And all that really meant was he wasn't doing the large crusades anymore. And I've heard the stories. I never got to meet Billy Graham. I never got to meet Bill Bright with Campus Crusade. I never got to meet any of these guys. But I've heard the stories and I've seen the pictures. Of, I mean, to their, to their last day. I mean, I mean, on oxygen, in a hospital bed in their homes. They were still gathering young people in ministry around them to encourage them and challenge them. Keep running. 
I'm soon one who's helped you and encouraged you. I'm soon to be leaving. But I need you to keep running. I need you to be a faithful steward of God's truth. Uh, Billy Graham, this is one of my favorite pictures of Billy Graham because I long for this day right here. Uh, He's in a rocking chair reading a book with his dog. Does it get any better than that? Like, is that his retirement? Yeah, that's part of it. But that's, listen, he did far more in his retirement. I know some of you have retired from a job, but if you are a follower of Jesus until you cross the finish line, which means take your last breath or the Lord returns, you are still investing in those coming behind you. You are still giving a charge to this generation, whatever generation is behind you. You're still giving a charge. Stay true to the word of God. Being corrected, rebuked, and encouraged. Billy Graham did that. I had that. I was able four days before my mentor, Gary Smalley, went to be with the Lord. I was able to go be at his bedside as he was on hospice. And I mean, to their last breath, still encouraging people. I hope that's true of me. I hope that's true of every single person at Woodland Hills Family Church. Billy Graham said this, someday you will read or hear that Billy Graham is dead. Don't you believe a word of it. I shall be more alive than I am now. I will just have changed my address. I will have gone into the presence of God. That leads us into the next two verses, verses 6 and 7, where Paul says to Timothy, after giving him this charge, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. It isn't just speaking of his life. He's saying now at the very end, like they would pour wine on the altar or on the ground. He goes, that's what my life is right now. It's being completely poured out, and I am ready to go be with the Lord. And then these familiar words to many, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. And I want to talk about that a little bit today. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. So we got these illustrations of a fighter and a a runner. What do boxers and runners have in common? Think about that for just a second. I know some of you just went to Rocky, you always go to Rocky whenever we mention fighting or boxing. But when I think of boxers and runners, I think of training, like long, hard hours, Day after day, I think of pain, I think of endurance, they're exhausted, they're worn down, they're beat up, and they feel a lot like this kid right here fighting the good fight. (laughs) Who thinks that's a parent that signed a kid up that didn't want to be there? But that's something, listen, there are some in this room right now and across this campus and watching online, they're just starting their race. And there are some in this room and across this campus and a lot at 815 that are nearing the finish line. They're coming to the end. Can I just encourage you that are nearing the finish line, as you run your race, cheer on runners behind you. Don't make it just about finishing. Don't make it be just about finishing with enough money. Don't don't make it about the conversation of just making sure you have enough to get that iron lung you might need one day or the hospice care. If that's your goal in finishing, you're missing it. Don't make just finishing your goal. As you near the finish line, cheer on those behind you. When I think about our Marriage 911 ministry, you need to know in this church, we, we have dozens and dozens of mentors that work with couples in crisis. RG and Karen Yallily, they've been married 58 years. You know what? 
they've earned a rocking chair and a dog and a front porch. I'll be honest with you, they got nothing left to prove. If they were completely done in ministry, none of us would look at them and be like, slackers, heading into your 80s, doing nothing. You know what? They roll up their sleeves. LRG's an elder at our church, but I mean, I, I got to tell you, and then and Grady and Sharon Reeves, they've been married 54 years. And you know, I've never been a big fan of the, the anniversary cards that say, you made it. You got here. Congratulations on 50 years. And there's people in here, you've been married 50 years, and it feels like <laughs> we got, that's not the goal of life to just get there. These people are pouring into other people, Ron and Anna Osborne. They've been married 52 years. And I, I got to be honest with you. These are couples who, who put up with a lot of nonsense with the way they're treated. Like, I hear stories. I'm not talking about the marriages themselves. I'm just talking about the way people in crisis treat them. And I'm like, I mean, I'm like, oh, I'll, let's, go, you know, I'm like, what, what in the world? But they don't have to do it. You know why? They understand this. Until they draw their last breath or the Lord returns, keep cheering on those behind you. It's not just about your marriage. It's not just about your race. It's about those who are running behind you. Finishing well means helping others run their race that are coming behind you, cheering them on. And some of you, I talked to somebody after the last gathering, they, they dropped out of the race. They're not fighting the good fight anymore. They're not running their race because they were offended by someone. Listen, don't let another Christian keep you from running your race. If you understand this. Every single person in here can name a name. And, and give that name as an excuse for quitting. You're not alone in that. You think you're alone in that? Some of us, our list would be like... <laughs> you are 100% responsible for your race and never let another person knock you out of the race. Never. Keep running. At the same time, there's a warning for me. It's a warning for you. Don't give another Christian an excuse to stop running. Don't be that person. Walk alongside, care for, and encourage those who are running and fighting the good fight. But it's fighting the good fight, running the race, keeping the faith. You may hear that term, keeping the faith, and think that means like securing your salvation. That's not at all what Paul is talking about as he gives this charge to Timothy. What he's speaking of when he says, I have kept the faith, is faithful stewardship of Christian truth. Sticking with the doctrine that was given to you. In Timothy's case, that was passed on to him from his mother and his grandmother. The ministry that he's now uh, involved in, it, it came from the laying on of hands. He was surrounded by people encouraging him and cheering him on as he ran. And we talk about that a lot in the church. Like, know your spiritual gifts, know your passion, know your abilities, your personality, your experiences. Find out what your race is and what God's called you specifically to do and steward that. What we're seeing today in this text, 2 Timothy 4, 7, is a responsibility of every single one of us, even when our race looks a little different. And that is to steward truth. To steward truth and to care for truth. But instead of keeping the faith today, there's a term that's going around. It's simply this, deconstructing faith. And I, we're going to do a whole message, I think, on, on, in May on this. And it's being discussed. And the younger generation is talking about it more. I want to include the, the older generations so they can be involved. But this means a lot of different things. That's why it's a little difficult to talk about. It's like the word woke. It means different things to different people. And you're like, no, it doesn't. Yeah, it does. Uh, 
deconstructing faith means a lot of different things. For some people saying they're deconstructing, they're not actually deconstructing, they're deconverting. So some would say this is the demolition of evangelical belief. There are those who use this term and they want to burn the church to the ground. They've had a bad church experience. They were in a toxic environment or an abusive environment in, in this church or this ministry. And they, they've taken this broad breaststroke and now they're painting all church and all evangelical churches and all ministries this way. And they've actually, some of them labeled themselves not evangelicals, but exvangelicals. So they're deconstructing. And you know what deconstructing is? I just, just so we know, this I think is true for everybody. Amy takes me to fancy restaurants from time to time. And I once had in a restaurant, true story, I should have brought a picture of it, uh, a deconstructed pumpkin pie where the plate came and it was all the pieces. I think it's a lazy chef. That's my opinion. <laughs> he had all the ingredients there and just put them on a plate and go, let them make their own pie. But, but what happens is all of us in our faith, we were handed pie and then we now are taking it and taking the pieces out of it and going, well, that isn't really what the Bible teaches. That's more of a tradition. That's not what Jesus taught. That was really more what my pastor growing up taught. And they begin deconstructing what was handed to them by leaders. So, but some are like, tear it all down. Others, it's just rethinking one's upbringing and faith tradition. Saying, I, I, just, I grew up with some pretty jacked up ideas. And I just want, I'm rethinking those. I'm, I'm, I'm even deconstructing from them. Some, some are deconstructing and they believe it's the cleansing of the church. And yes, there are toxic, spiritually abusive churches that need to be cleansed. And that they, they've allowed the, the main thing to drift. And now they find themselves hurting people rather than helping people. But I think for most people that I talk to when they leave the church, not our church, but some are church, but other churches. And it's just this, it's this disentangling themselves from, from maybe some things that they see that they don't think align with Scripture. And they don't want to walk away from Jesus, but they're struggling with believers and the church. And so many, it's just aligning beliefs with Scripture. Some call this a critical dismantling. But it's really the disentangling of what the Bible teaches, what we would call sound doctrine. It's disentangling this from cultural, political, and even denominational ties. And all of us have probably done this to some degree. I know there's folks in our church who have done this just recently. They've come to our church from a church that they've been a part of for decades, and that church didn't have instruments in worship. And they were taught that their whole life. You don't have instruments in the church. And then they come to Wilton Hill. I'll be honest with you, I've had conversations with them. I'm like, man, I would think our church would be a bit jarring. And there's probably other gateway churches, uh, you know, to start with, to get a start, like, like, just go to a piano church. Let's start there and work your way toward Wilton Hills. Because I just think, you know, Kevin Allen coming out, we go! Yeah, like, whoa, hey, all right. We, we went from nothing to, yeah, so. Uh, but some of you are doing that. And you're like, I, I'm looking in the scripture where we are not allowed to have instruments. So you're, you're disentangling what you grew up with. And you're trying to align what you believe with with the scripture. I started doing this years ago. I actually wrote a book called uh, Young and in Love for this purpose because I was just fed up with just purity culture. Again, the Bible teaches us men and women to live pure lives, to, to be a pure people. So I'm for purity. But the church started adding all sorts of weirdness 
And we now call that purity culture. And I, I started moving away from it because I, I thought, there, I'm just going to just be super honest with you today. I, I don't think it's appropriate in a church for a young adult leader or a 20-year-old leader in our church to be talking to a 12-year-old about um, porn to the degree where it's explicit, where it becomes a, a, a culture for grooming, not healthy, toxic, bad. I think sometimes we don't see how purity culture was that foundation and, and I'm here to tell you, whether it's the church or the schools, I'll be the one that talks to my kids about gender and identity and the sexually explicit stuff. Let me be the one that leads that. Now, for those that just clap, I'm, I'm kind of curious if you've ever linked the way the church has talked about it with the way the school has talked about it. Because I hear some people saying, I don't want the school doing this, 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 this. I'm like, the church has been doing that in a real weird way for decades. And it's inappropriate. So many have deconstructed from purity culture. And you can see this, this is, but I heard one contributor at the Gospel Coalition say it this way. As Christians, the process of evaluating our beliefs, traditions, and church culture in light of Scripture and rejecting any unbiblical beliefs with the goal of living more authentically as Christians. This should be a daily reality. And I like what she says. This isn't deconstruction. This is just daily aligning our lives with the scripture, being corrected, rebuked, and encouraged from the scripture. So deconstruction, for any of you who may be in this process now, is destructive. You're not deconstructing, you're deconverting if it leads you to deny the authority of scripture, to abandon faith and begin mocking and judging other believers. This is not the way of Christ. And if just reading Bible passages with no interpretation, just reading them makes you mad, this is where you need to check your heart. This is where you need to ask, why am I so mad when I read the Scripture? It's because you're on a destructive path, not on a healthy path. Deconstruction with reconstruction and understanding that, okay, now... And it's hard because some of you have... have denominational preferences and non-essentials so ingrained in you that to remove them after 30, 40, 50 years of them being preached to you is very difficult. And it's hard. It's a difficult process. Can I just encourage all of us, wherever you are in your faith journey right now, in your walk with Jesus, keep the faith. Be a steward of truth, a faithful steward of truth. Because watch verse 8. Paul says this, now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day for being a faithful steward of Christian truth. But not just me, Timothy. He says it won't just be me. Look at what he says. Not only me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. There is a crown for each one that is a faithful steward of truth. I, years ago, met with a pastor and an older gentleman, and, and I, I, I submit myself to the authority of older, wiser men all the time in our church, outside of our church, and, and it just kind of came up. He goes, do you have a hit-by-the-bus plan? I don't know if you know this, but most pastors are going to die by way of a bus. <laughs> and I go, I, I don't. He said, I need you to write it down and on the envelope put my hit-by-the-bus plan. I thought that was a little awkward. But he says, I want you to write down everything you want to see happen at Woodland Hills, 
um, everything you want to see happen in your family and all. I want you to just write it down, seal it up, and then make sure key people in your life know where it is so that if something happens to you today, they're ready to go. Like, well, the good news is we're an elder-led church. We have a teaching team. I mean, that kind of, that plan's already in place. Like, again, it doesn't hinge on one guy at, at Woodland Hills Family Church. So mine's a little bit different. I call it last words. And I want to encourage you, as you think about 2023, some of you have been stressing over a word. I want to encourage you. Maybe, maybe you need more than one word. Maybe a lot of words. Maybe a couple of pages. But I want to encourage you to write a letter to your family. You know, we're a family church, and at this church, we... We put so much into children, we put so much into students, we put so much into young adults, and when you see the young adults walking into this church, I want you to go elder, teaching pastor, family director, start point, because that's, they're, they're it. They're already walking in here. And as we near the finish line, it's not just about getting to the finish line, it's about going, looking behind us and going, come on, keep running, sound doctrine, be ready in season and out of season, preach. Write it down. And so some of you, maybe you've never done this, write a letter to your kids. I heard from many after the last gathering, they said, I have so many kids, Ted, and grandkids not walking with the Lord. Write them a letter. Don't wait. Don't make it your last words. Encourage them. Don't be that George Costanza's dad at Festivus. I got some real problems with you people. Don't make that the tone of your letter. <laughs> Encourage them. Give them a charge. I... I I, I, I have it. I'm prepared for it. And so once Billy Graham was asked, Mr. Graham, how would you like to be remembered? And these are some of his last words. I hope I will be remembered as someone who is faithful. Faithful to God, faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and faithful to the calling God gave me, not only as an evangelist, but as a husband, a father, and a friend. I'm sure I have failed in many ways, but I take comfort in Christ's promise of forgiveness. And I take comfort also in God's ability to take even our most imperfect efforts and use them for his glory. By the time you read this, I will be in heaven. And as I write this, I'm looking forward with great anticipation to the day when I will be in God's presence forever. And all God's people said, would you pray with me? Father, as we look at the heavy and challenging words, the last words of Paul to Timothy, may this be true of each one of us. May we not be those that are seeking itching ears. May we, we be faithful stewards of the truth. May we hold fast to what we've been given, what's been passed on to us from grandma and from mom, from church leaders that have laid hands on us. For the hurt, the church hurt, the toxicity, the abuse, that, I mean, all of this that comes against people, I just, I pray that it will not take them out of the race, that they will keep running, fighting the good fight, not using other people or other Christians as excuses but they will run the race and that they in their last days as they near the finish line it'll continue to pass on and they'll cheer on those behind them give us these eyes and these ears moving into 24 looking for the young people behind us that need encouragement that need challenge that need this charge may we do this with great patience and careful instruction 
for the one who's never placed faith in Jesus, that today would be the day of their salvation, that they would repent of their sins, confess with their mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in their heart that he's been raised from the dead, that they would be saved. Thank you for all that you've done in 23 at Woodland Hills. We are grateful as we look back over this morning's video. Um, what you've done, what you've done, we praise you for what you've done. And it's in the name of Jesus that we prayed. And everyone agreed and said, amen.